The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to the Dark Word. I am your host, Philip Fracassi, and I'm very excited today to have S.A. Cosby with me. Um, I'm going to read a quick bio and then we're going to get into it because I have a lot of questions. S.A. Cosby is an Anthony Award winning writer from Southeastern Virginia. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling Razor Blade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, a New York Times notable book, and was named a Best Book of the Year by NPR, The Guardian, and Library Journal, among others. His short fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines, and his story Slant 6 was selected as a distinguished story in Best American Mystery Stories for 2016. His short story The Grass Beneath My Feet won the Anthony Award for Best Short Story in 2019. And when not writing, he is an avid hiker and chess player. Sean, thank you so much for being here, man. It's nice to meet you. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm fascinated by writers who I think the perception is have kind of come out of nowhere with like this big hit, right? But then when you do the research and you look back on right their lives, it's like, no, man, this guy's been winding up for a long time and has been putting in the work, right, for a long time. And I think, you know, there's one thing I I talk about with new writers a lot. It's like, look, it's not an overnight thing, man. Like, you know, Laird Barron once told me, plan on 10 years if you're lucky for your first breakthrough. And I'm I'm fascinated because you had some really early books back in, you know, the 2014, 2015 stuff. And then you did a book called My Darkest Prayer in, I believe, 2019, which I remember when um, Blacktop Wasteland came out and I had, I bought that and read it and loved it. And I was like, went back to try and read My Darkest Prayer. And it was it was hard to find. I think it was like hard to out of print at that point, or, or not out of print, but it had been all snatched up. I want to talk a little bit for writers who may not understand the process. Can you talk a little bit about how you went from my Darkest Prayer, which I think would be safe to call like an indie release to Blacktop Wasteland, which was a huge hit. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on behind the scenes between, you know, between My Darkest Prayer and, and Blacktop? Yeah. So um, basically what happened between Darkest Prayer and Blacktop Wasteland was, and that's to sound facetious, but a lot of luck, a lot of uh, hard work goes into, into writing, but a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, so what happened with Darkest Prayer, it came out with a small publisher out of Maryland called Intrigue Publishing. Really great people, Austin and Denise Camacho. So shout out to them. But it's an independent press and they can only do so much. And so I took it upon myself to kind of do sort of a rock and roll punk rock thing where I got as many copies of the book as I could and rode up and down the East Coast, giving them away, selling them, trying to convince uh, uh, bookstores to carry them and all that. And, it, you know, it, it was mm-hmm. moderately successful. But what happened was 
I took the book with me to uh, BoucherCon in Florida in 2018. And, uh, you know, the BoucherCon, for anybody listening, is a huge mystery writers convention. It's like a world mystery writers convention. Um, and you get people all the way from England, from France, all across the country. And you'll see your favorite mystery writers there often. You'll see Lee Child, I've seen James Patterson there. Uh, Walter Mosley, Gillian Flynn, so on and so forth. But it's also just regular readers and also folks like me who were struggling writers trying to, as we say out, in this, out here, trying to get on. So um, I went down there and, uh, you know, I was just doing the whole networking, begging people to read my book thing. And um, a friend of mine, Eric Pruitt, who's a writer, filmmaker uh, out of North Carolina, he was doing a panel called Southern Crime Fiction. And it was just Southern Crime Fiction. And he asked me to be on the panel. He needed an extra extra hand on the panel. And it was a panel of really established heavy hitters. It was Ace Atkins, um, Steph Post, and Alex Segura, and, and Eric. And uh, I kind of felt a little bit out of place, but I love talking about writing. I love talking about Southern fiction. And after that panel, uh, there were some folks in the audience that really enjoyed what I was saying and my uh, ideas about Southern fiction and, and crime fiction in general. And one of those folks was a guy named Josh Getzler, who's a literary agent out of New York City. And he um, was impressed with some of the things I said. And he asked me uh, to send him whatever I was working on, which ended up being Blacktop Wasteland. I sent it to him and he he liked it and he really identified with it. And uh, he went about signing mm. me and trying to sell it. And I'm, I know that I'm very lucky um, with the way things worked out with Blacktop because, you know, sometimes you get signed to an agent. I had an agent before and had a book I was trying to sell and, after a year and a half, we parted ways because it just wasn't working. So I had no preconceived notions that Blacktop would get sold. I just, you know, taking a chance. And it literally sold in three months from the time I was signed. Which is not <laughs> exactly. No, that's amazing. But a lot of that. But like you said, I mean, I've been writing for a long time, a long time. You know, Darkest Prayer came out and uh, fully came out in 2019. And then uh, I had written a couple fantasy novels. I had done some novellas bunch of short stories, you know, but I was just kind of just a, a guy that wrote. And so there was no fanfare, as they say, around my work. I didn't. And for anybody listening, you think I I think I did, at least when you get an agent, you feel like, well, this is it. You know, let's pop some champagne bottles. And uh, sometimes how can I say this? I don't want to be derogatory because the agent that I had, I'm not going to say it was he was he's a great guy. We just weren't on the same page about my career, about things I wanted. And, you know, and like I said, when, we, when I say we parted ways, it was amicable. You know, it wasn't, you know, there was no animosity on either end. And in fact, uh, when Black Top Wasteland blew up, he sent me a really nice uh, letter, a card, congratulating me. So, you know, it just didn't work out. But with Black Top, it was just the right place at the right time. It changed yeah. my life. You know, um, my publisher, Flatiron, um, it, to be perfectly frank, uh, Flatiron had had a, a bit of bad publicity earlier in the year before Black Top came out with a book called American Dirt. And whatever your opinion of that book is, it was some bad publicity mm -hmm. behind it. Um, and I can only speak to my experience with Flatiron. They've been great with me um, as, a, as a writer and as a writer of color. They've really been supportive of my, my vision and the stories I want to tell. And so, you know, you have this bit of bad publicity and then you have this, this book that people seem to uh, identify with. And it was just the right place at the right time, you know. And, and I think also, you know, sadly, the pandemic helped increase book sales across the board for everyone. And I was just, I think, a part of that rising tide. But uh, I think the thing that if I could pass any bit of information or, or advice on anybody, like Laird said, 
you know, 10 years, 15 years, it you've got to be prepared to wait. Yeah. I think a lot of people aren't because writing and getting published is just like a lightning strike. And so I think people get frustrated. I think people get angry, rightly so. But I was doing a thing, uh, a, a reading and a Q&A recently. And uh, a guy got in the audience asked me, he said, you know, how do I know if I'm a writer? What, you know, what, what, how did you know you're a writer? And I said, I told him, I said, if you can do anything else and it doesn't hurt you to not write, then you're not a writer mm-hmm. because writing is hard and being an author is hard and putting yourself out there is painful. You know, the connection with your writing is so personal. It's so personal, man. And so like when you're an actor and you go to an audition and they reject you, you can tell yourself, well, the material wasn't that great or, you know, they didn't understand my characterization. Or if you're a singer and you get rejected, you know, at an audition, you think, well, the song wasn't that good or the melody's bad. When you're a writer, it feels like they're rejecting you because it's so much a part of you. And that hurts, man. And, and you know, there were days if I could stop writing, I would have because it hurt so bad. But I felt worse not writing than I felt Yeah, dude, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to start, first of all, and you just have to take my word for it. I have have some notes that I write down before I talk to each guest. And after I had done some some research on you and, you know, some bio research and stuff, I literally have written down on my notepad, hard work equals luck. Meaning, you know, in Mm -hmm. my career, I've been a beneficiary of being incredibly lucky as well. I mean, as, as, as having the timing, I just got, I I just did a two book deal with, with Tor Nightfire that the amount of luck that went into the, that deal happening, you know, I could do a whole show on about me, which I won't do, but, but the point is it, but it came with a lot of hard luck before that. And it came hard work before that. And it came with also the right to your point, being in the right place at the right time. You know, you and I are sort of similarly aged i you know we're in that perfect what i like to call that wheelhouse sweet spot of of of, you know mid-century and you know and the people you know i sometimes i used to get bummed out you know like oh you know i wish i had started when i was younger i wish i'd been published when i was you know like stephen king like i saw in an interview you did where he's like yo king was publishing Mm -hmm. when he was like in his 20s these you know outstanding books and and it's hard to you never want to compare yourself to the greats but because it's so daunting and discouraging but the reality is i came to the I came to the realization that, you know, I don't think I could be writing what I'm writing right now when I was 30 or when I was 40. I think it was a combination, right? It's a combination of life oh, no. experience, no. you know, developing a skill and then kind of having it all come together at the right time with a little bit of luck, you know? And so uh, one of the things I wanted to touch back on is so the agent thing. So this is something I think is really interesting because to to writers, because it's, it's the question that, you know, we're always asked is how do you get an agent? How do you get an agent? I think people have an assumption that when they get an agent, there's the angel choir, mm-hmm. right? Is cue the angel choir, the golden light comes down, the doors, you know, the, the giant, mm-hmm. you know, the giant mm-hmm. doors open and you walk through into paradise. And so I okay, so you're on your second agent and you kind of struck gold with your second agent, meaning you had not so much in the release, I don't mean that way, but I mean in the sense that you found someone who you relate to, who is, you know, super into your work is, and, and you, for whatever reason, you know, and then you guys have that like kind of connection. I'm on my third agent and like you, my first agent, I, and I split up because he had a novel that we couldn't sell and he kept wanting to make it into something I didn't want it to be. And there was a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. And so that was that. And then I had a second agent who I just didn't think was doing enough work, frankly. And so 
you know, an, an agent is not the end all be all. You know, an agent is great because they get your work to people who normally would not get to see it. Mm-hmm. They get it to the publishers and the editors who normally would not get to see that that book because you have to have an agent to get to you know to open certain doors with the big fives and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but an agent does not necessarily mean okay, game on. Like now we're gonna you know make a big deal. So I think writers need to understand no, that when you get when all. you get that yeah when you get that agent like you know that if it's not working out for you you can try again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, and I think for writers, especially if you were like me, who came from a background of no representation, you know, really not a great writing community. You know, I'm from southeastern Virginia. I live in a small town. At the time, I wasn't able to like go to a lot of stuff with writers, like conventions, like a AWP or Thriller Fest. I just couldn't afford it. Right. And the way I found an agent was I had published in Thug Lit three times, and the third time was uh, my story Slant Six. And um, that was actually the last story in the last issue of Thuglet. And that, that this particular agent saw it, contacted the editor of Thuglet, who's a great guy, Todd Robinson. And Todd, you know, kind of passed the information along to me and we connected. And I really thought this was it, you know. And, and it was terrifying because I initiated the breakup, I guess, if you want to call it like that. And it was terrifying because I was I, I felt like. I'm back to square one. I'm back to zero. Yep. Nobody's ever going to want to represent me again. Yep. And and so what happened was I I sold Darkest Prayer, which is a book the agent couldn't sell, and I sold it to an independent press on my own. And I started writing what eventually became Black Tie Wasteland. And I'll say this about that: I started writing Black Tie Wasteland in a, in a mindset of like Bruce Springsteen writing uh, Born to Run. I had nothing to lose, mm-hmm. you know. And so I just threw everything in that book, everything I liked, everything that appealed to me as a crime fiction writer, uh, all the tropes, all the cliches, but filtered through my own life experience. And, um, you know, it was scary. It was scary because I did that. And then I was I I didn't know if anybody would connect with it, you know, at least of all, you know, a a very erudite, studious agent from New York City. But I was uh, I was lucky he did. That's another thing that I've heard from many writers and something that I preach as well as like, look, there's no such thing as an original story. Let's, let's call a spade a spade, right? Like every movie you've seen is a con, you know, conglomeration of, of other movies. Every, every story you hear is, you know, mm-hmm. let's talk about, you know, you know, how it's, how it's tied into, you know, the myths and the classics or whatever. And I think what, what, mm-hmm. what, 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 mm-hmm. what people want, yeah. what readers want and what editors want and what agents want is they want a voice. Mm-hmm. They want to hear your version of this story, your take on that, your perspective on this story. I think Lisa Morin said it great. I was when I was talking to her, we were talking about anthologies and when you have to when when they give you a very specific theme. And she said, "No, because what I because I actually take it as a challenge because what I like to do is I like to take that topic and I like to say, "All right, what would this be if it was a Lisa Morton story?" Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so interesting because that's right. That's what we you know that's what writers do. It's like this is my this is, you know, this is an S.A. Cosby, mm-hmm. you know, story. This is this is my story. This is my version of how this goes down. And I thought Blacktop was was all about that. And I want let's talk about that process because I was reading about your process a little bit, and I found it really interesting. And a lot of writers are really intrigued by, how, you know, do you outline? Do you? <laughs> is it a pants? Are you a pants or are you a plotter and all that stuff, right? <laughs> um, and I have my own thing, but I would love to hear because uh, I want to get in your short fiction as well, which is why I'm talking mm-hmm. so fast. But I also want to hear about your your novel process. If, when you're approaching a novel, 
um, you know, what's the, what's the first thing you do, the second thing you do, and, you know, yeah. kind of take us through a little bit of your steps be- between concept, you know, the time you woke up going, oh, that'd be kind of cool, to yeah. when you send it off to uh, your agent. Yeah. So basically for me, I start every book out with a pretty detailed synopsis. I, I'm not a pantser. I'm not a plotter. I'm sort of a hybrid of the two. Um, and for me, it's usually like a stream of consciousness synopsis. And so it's just like with Blacktop Waste, it's like, all right, there's this guy named Bug. He's a former getaway driver. He's trying to change his life. And he needs, he's, you know, backed up against it with money problems. He has a daughter from previous relationship. He has two sons with his current wife. You know, he owns an auto, auto mechanic shop, but that's going under, you know. And I, I start just writing the story, kind of sketching him out as a character. What kind of person is he? You know, he's smart but tough. Um, but he's also wounded. He's a, he's got daddy issues and so on and so forth. And so I kind of just tell the story to myself. And usually the synopsis ends up being about three or four pages of just that kind of stream of consciousness writing. A lot of times I use it as just an outline or a, a roadmap, I'd rather say. You know, the ending of the synopsis often is not the ending of the book, but it just gives me a guidepost to see where I want the story to go. And also with the synopsis, I hit story beats that I want to hit. You know, first act, second act. I use three act structure, so... First act, second act, third act. You know, something momentous happens at the end of the first act. Something crazy happens at the end of the second act. And then there's a, you know, denouement at the end of the third act. I use that kind of three-act structure pretty pretty liberally. Uh, I'm not someone that wants to try to reinvent the wheel when I'm writing stories. And so for me, that's sort of how I get started with the book. Um, of course, within that, you know, it's just like the alphabet. There's 26 letters in the alphabet, but you can make a million words from it. So I can kind of go in any direction I want after that. Yeah. Now do you, so do you do outlines in addition to the synopsis or what you have your synopsis? Do you break it up into an outline format or you just kind of, once you have your synopsis, you're off and running. I just use synopsis. I, I, I'm not a fan of outlines because I think outlines for me are too rigid. Um, it, it doesn't give the flexibility I want when it comes to telling the story. I'm not a pantser. I don't like going to the story without any idea of where it's going to go. Um, I wouldn't say it's terrifying for me. It's just harder. It's, to me, it's just more work. I do like to have sort of a, a general idea of what I want to talk about, what I want to write about and, and everything. But uh, I don't like the outline. Like I said, it's just too rigid, too structured. So I want a little bit of the, the flexibility of the free formness of being a pantser, but I also like sort of the, the, the order of being a plotter. So I kind of, like I said, I try to make my own hybrid sort of style with that. Right. One thing I read that I thought was really interesting and I want to talk about is you have like a writing group. You have like a, some beta readers that you trust to who you send early chapters to, at least what you did with, with I think, the, the last couple of books. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know a lot of writers have questions about the importance of or the value of, I should say, beta readers. Um, what, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. I have a, a, a few writer friends that I trust really well who are you know, I trust them to be honest with me. You know, if you send it to your best friend or your cousin or somebody, you know, they're not going to tell you. When your you, mom. Yeah, your mom or whatever. They're not going to tell you when you've gone astray with the story or when something's not not clicking. And so uh, I've got some friends that I really do trust and really do appreciate their honesty and their, you know, insights. And so for me, especially like Blacktop and Razorblade, there were quite a few people you may know uh, who are writers that I was able to send it out to. It's a guy named uh, James D.F. Uh, Hanna. Uh, that's a pseudonym for a friend of mine named Chad Williamson, who's a great writer. Writes a series of detective books, the Henry Malone series for Down and Out books. Um, there's a writer named Nikki Dolson, who's a, one of the great short story writers uh, working today. And she also has a collection called Love and Other Acts of Criminal Behavior. She's a great writer. 
um, she was a real inspiration and also instrumental in writing uh, Blacktop and Razorblade. Mm. Um, a couple other folks uh, that I use um, that are friends of mine that just, you know, they're, they're writers, so they get it. But at the same time, they're readers, they're fans of crime fiction. And so they get that too. And they are totally honest with you about what works and what doesn't, you know, like with Razorblade Tears, there's a scene in Razorblade Tears um, for anybody who's listening, Razorblade Tears is a story of two fathers, one black, one white, who are seeking revenge for their murdered sons who were married. And so there's a scene in Razorblade where um, these two protagonists have to go to a gay bar. Um, they're looking for clues as to who killed their son. And the original version of that scene was sort of pedantic and sort of morale, um, overly indulgent morality play, I'll put it like that. And I had some people read it and they were honest. They're like, this doesn't work. You know, you, you, you know, you're writing, if you want to be honest, you can't put people, you know, on a pedestal. I was trying so hard to not make the LGBTQ plus characters caricatures that I ended up making them saints. And that's not good either. You know, you want to give characters a full width and breadth of human emotions. And I wouldn't have gotten that insight, I don't think, um, if I hadn't sent it out to some of my friends who are writers in their own right and who I feel close enough to that they can be totally honest with me. I think beta readers can be invaluable. I think I think what you have to watch out for, and, and I would like to n- get your perspective on this, is I think sometimes writers will send a, a short story or, or a partial of a novel or a complete novel out to three or four pe- people, and but sometimes what can happen is it can be a little overwhelming because just like a re- just like any reader, the, the, you know, it's so subjective, right? And some readers will give you a one star and some readers will give you a five star, right? Hopefully. So, you know, sometimes when a beta reader comes back to you, like you're getting three or four beta readers and they're all giving you different notes. And sometimes as a writer, you're like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's a lot of stuff to incorporate. And, and I'm not even hundred percent sure I agree with everything. And what I tell people mm-hmm. is take what you want and leave the rest. You know, it's, there, it's not right. all gospel, but it helps you think through to your point if you if two or three writers say the same thing or readers, sorry, say the same thing about a, a certain scene, maybe you need to look at that scene again. It doesn't necessarily mean that if they say they don't like a, a line or, or, or whatever it is, it doesn't mean that you have to do whatever the beta reader says, but it's great to have that kind of feedback. So it gets you thinking a little bit more about what they're talking about. I mean, do you think that's true? Is that how you t- look at it? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you've got to take it from, you got to evaluate the source of the criticism too. You know, I, I have a friend who uh, is trying to get into writing and she would send out her, her work to some people that she knew. And some of the people she knew were people that were frankly, not great beta readers. They were people who are aspiring writers themselves and they had very strong ideas about their own viewpoints of fiction. And so mm-hmm. because she wasn't doing what they were doing, they were like, Oh, this is terrible. This is all awful. This is, you know, or they, they would be very passive aggressive. Like, Oh, if that's what you want to do. I mean, I don't know if that's, and I, I told him when she asked me about it, I said, look, right. Yeah. I know. Right. Here's, I said, here's the thing. Do you like the story you're writing? And she's like, yeah. I said, do you like the characters you're writing about? She's like, yeah. I said, so I basically, I said what you said, like, look at the beta readers you have, see if there's any, you know, commonality between the three that you had sent it out to. And there was only one who was really like going in on her. And the other two were like, eh, you know, they didn't connect with it, but they didn't have a whole lot of negative things to say. So you've got to take, like I said, you evaluate the source, evaluate where that, that criticism is coming from and see if it's valid. Because not all criticism is valid, you know, especially, I think, if there's a person that you are trusting to be a beta reader who has their own aspirations, you know, and, and, and if they have like a, um, if they have like a Salieri moment, like in Amadeus, when they're reading it and they see how good it is, 
people are people and people can be petty. So you've got to be aware of that. You know? Yeah, right. And I don't think that's happened in my work yet. I'm waiting for that moment. But yeah, um, when the jealousy of another writer comes in. But at the end of the day, it's, do you like it? Do you like what you wrote? Do you like your story? I was having a, a coffee with a, with an aspiring writer the other day. And, uh, she wanted to meet up and just talk about stuff. And I said, look, it, you can be your own judge and jury. Like it's yours. It's your creation. Like, you know, if you like it and you believe in it, then go with it. So sometimes it's about voice and it's about having your own, own voice. And, and that can be almost as valuable as, you know, a, a, a unique plot, you know, or, or whatever it is. And, um, and so I think it's, I think beta readers are great. And I've had many beta readers. And I just think to your point, take what you want and leave the rest and look at the source. And um, it's a great tool. I think also, I think like this particular person I was talking about, it's a friend of mine. I think sometimes people want uh, the answers to how to write a bestseller or how to write a book that's going to get published, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you can't write by committee. You can't write to trends. Part of being a writer is a little bit being stubborn. I'm going to write about this and I'm going to make you care, you know, and, 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 you know, I think that some writers, especially aspiring writers, they think that there's some secret word or phrase that's going to make their book a bestseller or make it get picked up. And then, you know, Somerset Mom said that uh, there's three rules to writing. And uh, the first rule is nobody knows the other two, you know, and, and that's true. Nobody knows what's going to hit. And, and I think, but you have to have vision. You have to have your personal vision about what you're going to write about. You know, I've read books that in the middle of the book, something happens that's almost unbelievable, but the writer is so good and the writer believed in it. Whether it's a crime fiction, whether it's a, a quote-unquote literary, whether it's the horror, whatever, the writer believed in it so much, they created a sense, you know, a suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think as an aspiring writer, you've got to reach for that. You know, there are scenes in Blacktop Wasteland that people have t- told me later, oh man, that car couldn't do that, or I don't think he could jump off an overpass like that or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's, it's a book. It's fiction. I want you to be in that moment. I don't want you to be doing a popular mechanics article while you're reading it, you know? Yeah. And so uh, I think sometimes aspiring writers, they want validation, but sometimes seeking validation, they want an explanation. And, and sometimes you just got to go with your gut. You know, it's funny. In the I work in the film and TV industry, and one of the things we often mention when we're on set is if if there's a, a you know a flower pot or something that doesn't match the rest of the you know set dressing or whatever, and the phrase that always gets popped popped around on a movie set is, "Hey, look, if they're paying attention to that, we're doing something wrong." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is the same with fiction, right? Hey, if you're paying attention to this little little detail. Then we're doing something wrong with the with the rest of the story because you should not be caring about whether or not uh, the you know that engine matched that model car in that mm-hmm. year exactly. or whatever. And it's actually interesting because I went through recently my first series of of professional copy edits from a from a from a big five publisher, which is a much different experience than going through <laughs> proofs or copy edits from an independent oh, publisher. Yeah. No offense to anyone involved, but um, I was getting dude, I was getting very annoyed because i was like nobody cares man because she you know she would bring up stuff like you know i don't believe that in 1995 they were using photo id badges at elementary schools and i was like who gives a shit i don't care if they were yeah. nobody cares i'm talking you know there's like a monster in the woods and the kid has telekinetic powers nobody cares about the photo <laughs> id badges but i'm wondering if i'm wondering if you've had similar experiences with 
copy edits that you've gotten from the Flatiron guys. You know, we want to be uh, politically correct here, but is there something that from your experience where you can kind of maybe express to uh, someone who might be listening as to like how copy edits work and how, you know, how you work with, with them? So first of all, I love my copy editors. They're great. Um, but um, right, right. in, in Blacktop Wasteland, uh, I create a county, a, a setting, right? Everything takes place in a in a town called Red Hill County, Virginia, right? And it's it's an amalgamation of the three counties that border my hometown. So I just put them all together. And so when I was doing going through right. copy edits, the copy editor was like, "Well, you know, you said Route Six Twenty Eight cuts through town and takes the left here, but I looked at a map and there is no Route Six Twenty Eight that goes into this town or that town." But and I'm you know that was very much like, "Yeah, that's just me making up." Those things are inconsequential to the story, but. I will give copy editors credit. That's their job. Their, their job is to nitpick and look for things. Right. What I've learned is if you can justify it, then the copy editor will go with it. You know, if you're like, hey, yeah, I understand that that, that route doesn't exist, but we you know we're we're taking poetic license here to create a story. Or for instance, I had a character say after a heist that uh, the law says if you commit an armed robbery, you get this many years, but murder is, you know, there's never a statute statute limitation on murder. And I was kind of off on what the sentence was for armed robbery. Those things are like, yeah, okay, let's make that as as close to reality as possible. Right. Uh, With copy edits, I think you just got to, you've got to pick and choose the hills that you're going to stand on, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Because the copy editor's job essentially is to get everything right, is in the devils and the details. And, you know, I think sometimes... I know I did at first. Writers get frustrated, like, you know, God damn, the book is done. Can we move on? And it's not, <laughs> right. you, you know, it's like the, the, the copy editor is like, I'm trying to make it right. And, you know, and sometimes copy editors can save your butt, you know, sometimes they can be like, yeah. hey, uh, you know, you said X, Y, and Z, and that never happened. And, you know, if you put it in this book, you know, you might be, that might take away people's suspension of disbelief. But right. sometimes, a lot of times, copy editors, are, are like I said, they're detail oriented, and it's your job, like you said, as a writer, to make them not pay attention to that. Right? You know, and you're never going to get everything perfect. You know, especially like I, I think it's Robert Craze who said the worst thing ever is uh, writing about guns in crime fiction because there's somebody out there who's a gun enthusiast who's going to like just abrade you every time. And so for me, I stop using <laughs> specific kinds of guns. I just say revolver yeah. or pistol or shotgun, <laughs> right? Because like, I got tired of getting nasty emails. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, I wrote. I had the I had the terrible idea of writing a uh, a civil war horror story. I mean, Sean, I did so much research. I mean, I was bleeding from my eyes researching this this battle, uh, <laughs> civil war battle. And yeah, I mean, I got torn apart by like this you know one guy in particular on because civil war buffs, you know, be careful. And um, I think I called gunships gunboats and. Man, he one starred my ass. <laughs> right. We, um, and we, let's talk a little bit about this because it's interesting. I'm going to have Almakatsu on later in the week, and we're going to talk about researching historical fiction. And, but I want to touch a little bit with you because it's interesting that you have an interesting perspective on it, which is like, yeah, you know what? If I think it's going to get me in trouble, I just stay clear of it. And, there's, and why not? Because it does, it can get you in trouble, especially when you're doing, God forbid, a period piece. But I think it's interesting that you know, your perspective is like, I just generalize. Like, I don't even say it's a Glock, whatever, because, because that's not really important, but what is important is like, okay, but maybe, uh, this group 
uh, who plays a big role in the story didn't exist or didn't come to formation for another 20 years. That could be something that you're glad the copy editor caught. But if, if they're telling yeah. you that you have the wrong ammo and the handgun, it's like nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares. So it might be inter- it's interesting that sometimes it's just better to generalize about that. I want to talk quickly about because I was reading an article you wrote, or I'm sorry, an interview that you did in an article, and you and you mentioned a whiteboard. What is the whiteboard when it comes to your process of writing a, a book? So for, for my first two books, I didn't use a whiteboard. I just used like a little notebook with notes in it and my synopsis, and I kind of just wrote from there. Mm-hmm. But the book I'm working on now, it's it's a true... And my first book was a murder mystery, but it was not nearly as complex as this one. It was just... It was a first person, right? So when you're doing a first person murder mystery... The readers only know as much as you know, or as the character knows. So when you're doing, I'm doing this one now, it's a third person, omniscient narrator, and it's a murder mystery. So I can't tell the readers but so much because I don't want them to get ahead of my character. Right. So I got a whiteboard because I was like, I was talking to a friend of mine, Kelly Garrett, who's a fantastic mystery writer. And she said, you got to get a whiteboard. You got to get a whiteboard and list the, the suspects, list the red herrings, pick the killer, whoever that is, and stick with it. Don't forget who it is. Like she's like, and so she gave me some advice. So now I'm I'm using this whiteboard chapter by chapter. I've done twelve chapters of a book that I think is going to end up being thirty two to forty chapters long. Uh, and the whiteboard has information on. I'm looking at it right now. Like I have red herring, and then under red herrings I have four or five people's names, and then uh, I have themes that I want to hit in these next chapters. I have a uh, certain um, clues later on down the line. So all of that's on the board so I don't forget it when I'm writing because for me, sometimes when I'm writing, I zone out. Like I just get in the story so deep. I forget a person's name. So somebody will start out being named Dan and they'll end up being Donnie and it's like, oh "Oh, man, what the hell? So because I'm writing this murder mystery, it's very important I don't do that. And so now I'm using the whiteboard and I found to my consternation because I'm a lazy writer that the whiteboard actually helps a lot. It helps keep me ordered. It helps keep me straight. And it also helps me streamline the process because I don't have to go back and hit change all because like I said, Donnie became Dan halfway through the book. And so for me, that's helped me organize my thoughts a little better. Um, I don't think it interrupts the creative flow for me just because it's just, again, it's like the synopsis. It's just a guidepost. It's just trying to help me stay, you know, keep it between the yellow lines, so to speak. It, it, It just has helped me more you know, and I think, go back to copy editing, it'll help the copy editor because a lot of things that I let slip through my, when I'm, my previous two books, I, I don't think are going to get through because I'm using a different process, a little more organized process. Um, I was afraid of using the whiteboard for a long time because I thought it would stifle the creativity. Um, but really, it just helps me helps me focus the story. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that earlier, we talked about you use a three act structure and I've, you know, I'm a screenwriter as well as an, as a writer and, and I've shown writers, here's a couple of books on writing a screenplay that are, I think are valuable because they, they talk about structure. They talk about story structure and they, and I've heard writers say back to me, it's like, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want that stuff. It's just going to stifle my, my creativity. I'm like, dude, it's not, it's, it's, it's going to allow you to work within this, within a parameter that that is, you know, creates a, a, a solid structure. And you talked about using a three-act structure, but you also, you do a stream of consciousness synopsis and you have your whiteboard to kind of keep things straight, but then you just kind of go. So you're kind of like, you you mentioned, you're kind of like a hybrid of the two, but are there other things that you've studied, oh, yeah. you know, like, like beats, like Truby's beats or Sid Field's beats or anything like that? Are you into any of that stuff? Yeah. One of the books that I read that had a huge impact on Blacktop and Razorblade 
Um, and you could, I think if you read Darkest Prayer and you read Blacktop, you could see it was a story by Robert McKee. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, this huge book. It's a giant book. But one of the things that he said in there that stuck with me, and it's about screenwriting, but I, I think it, it's right. It can work for any writing. He said, if you start a scene or a chapter, let's paraphrase, um, and you start it negatively, there's a negative connotation, a negative action, a negative situation. You should end it with a positive or vice versa. If the scene starts with a positive, end it with a negative. And so what you're doing is creating mini cliffhangers every chapter. And I think that Interesting. I think that creates an incredible sense of pace. You know, if every time you close a chapter, something either good is happening, you're like, oh, man, these, they're going to be all right. Or if you close the chapter, like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on? <laughs> you, you, you get the, right, the readers like, oh, man, I got to get this next chapter. I got to see what happens. Uh, I read a book. And I cannot think of the title of it. It's by William Goldman. It was about screenwriting. The guy who wrote the... Uh, oh, yeah. That's a fantastic book. Yeah. I can't think of the title of it. So I read that. Um, I read um, On Writing by Stephen King, which, you know, you don't have to be a hard writer to get something out of that book. I mean, yeah, it's part of his autobi- it's part of bi- autobiography, but it's also a lot in there about writing. And one of the things he says that stuck with me is, hey, read as much as you can. Learn as much as you can about English, about language. You know, it's your toolbox. You may not need every tool in that toolbox, but it's best to have it and be prepared. And so I, I kind of took that to heart as well. So those are some of the books that sort of influenced me, especially when it comes to thinking about narrative. I'll, I'll say one more thing. Um, yeah. There's a guy named named Jordan Harper who wrote She Rides Shotgun. Um, he's also a, a film a screenwriter and he writes for TV and stuff. A brilliant guy. He has a, um, I'm giving him some free advertising, but he has a newsletter called Welcome to the Hammer Party where he talks about the different aspects of writing almost philosophically, you know, about mm-hmm. narrative flow, about, uh, he has a phrase, don't break the dream, which is sort of, you know, suspension of disbelief, but in a more complex way. And he just did one talking about, uh, uh originality and how originality is overrated. You know, it's like, so how you have to kind of interpret originality through your own prism. I- I'll just say right, this yeah. about Jordan. He, He's a friend, but also he's a brilliant writer. And nobody that I'm aware of is thinking about writing the way he is. I've learned so much from that newsletter. So just wanted That's to say that. Yeah. The, the William Goldman book, at least the one that I'm aware of, is Adventures in the Screen Trade. Which that's it, that's yeah. It. Which which like like the Stephen King book is, is semi autobiographical, but also he gets a lot into his process. And the thing that I and the, here's the thing I was going to say about that is, you know, first know the rules and then break them at will. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I yeah. think what I think it's like beta, the beta readers thing. You don't have to take every single thing he says and apply it to your work. You can, but it's so fascinating to see how somebody would would structure a story. And there may be even there may be one out of a hundred things. That you take away. Yeah. The biggest thing that I, I, and I learned this from Dennis, reading Dennis Lehane books, is make your violence have consequences. There's nothing I hate more than reading a book where a guy gets shot in the arm or the shoulder in one chapter, and he's doing angry push-ups in the next chapter to get himself back in shape. Before we go, and I'm going to let you go, if you you could throw out a handful of writers that you think people should read, but let's specify it specifically to saying, if you want to read, um, you know, if you want uh, to read a great thriller or a great crime novel, who are, who are a few writers that come to your mind that you would, you would um, offer it out to people who are listening? I'll give you four. Um, I mentioned him already. Jordan Harper, she rides shotgun. He has a book coming out yeah. next year called everybody, everybody knows, um, which is sort of a, uh, an updated, sort of a modern L.A. confidential type story about 
Modern Day Hollywood, which I've had the privilege of reading an early copy of. It's amazing. Um, William Boyle, who writes thrillers, but thrillers, they're almost Charles Dickinson thrillers, where it's a cast of characters in Brooklyn or the Bronx. And talking about violence having consequences, the violence in those books is real and it lasts and it makes a difference in the people's lives. Um, Megan Abbott, who is, for my money, pound for pound, one of the best crime writers of all time. Read the Megan Abbott's books because there's not a better crime writer working today. Um, and finally, I'll say uh, Jennifer Hillier, um, who wrote a few years ago, one of my favorite books of all time, Jar Hearts. She just wrote Little Secrets, which is great. She takes the domestic thriller and she turns the screws up and tightens it to another level. And uh, I, I just find her work fascinating. Sean, I want to thank you so much for being here and for taking the time to chat with me about you know, we could have gone on for another hour. I have so much more, but maybe we'll maybe we'll see each other at a convention. I can corner you and ask you about your short story work. But thank you for being here and uh, wish you the best success, my friend. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.